Hi everyone. Just a reminder that this show is not legal advice, trading advice, financial advice, or personal advice. Enjoy the show and thank you very much. Yo, yo, welcome to Crypto 101, the average consumer's guide to cryptocurrency. This is Matthew Aaron. And regulation is inevitable. But how? How is regulation going to come into the crypto space? Well, I think a good way to assess that is looking at regulation of the past. How did it come into the traditional markets? What happened during the Great Depression that pushed the traditional markets to regulate the way they did? What happened in the dot-com bubble? What happened in 2008? Well, let's go through that journey and see what regulations are in the EU and in the United States to give us some sort of reference and guideline of what could possibly be regulated in the crypto space. And we welcome Jamie Kershid and Mike Greenacre onto the show to talk about the evolution of regulation. But before we get into that conversation, please go to Crypto101Podcast.com, join our social medias, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all can be joined from there. Send us an email, say what's up by hitting the contact button on the top of the page. Also, please go to iTunes, leave us a rating and a good comment to help us stay visible for everybody to find Crypto101's content. And finally, of course, don't forget to pick up Johnny's Guide to Cryptocurrency for Christmas by going to book.crypto101podcast.com. Now, without further ado, let's talk regulations. We will see you after the show. Jamie Kirsten and Mike Greenacre, welcome to Crypto 101. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Matthew. Nice to be here. Gents, I am so happy I got introduced to you through XYO. I am very excited about our topic today. The topic today we have planned is the history of regulation in the US, the EU. We're going to go back to the Great Depression, talk about how regulation began, what happened in the traditional markets, how it can apply to the crypto markets. And then we get to go to ETFs. What are ETFs? Everybody says they want a Bitcoin ETF. You know, there's already ETFs out there with gold and other commodities. But what does that mean and what will it mean for Bitcoin? So I'm excited for you to be here today. Thank you for coming on. Thanks so much for having us. But before we get into that, let's get to know you a little bit. Jamie, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely, Matthew. So my name is Jamie Kershid. I uh, I grew up in the Middle East, actually in, in Abu Dhabi and Dubai specifically. I was fortunate or unfortunate enough to be sent to boarding school uh, at the age of eight in the UK, where I picked up this fantastically British accent. My professional career started out in 1998. I moved to New York and worked on the trade floor at Credit Suisse First Boston at the time on 11 Madison Avenue. I Subsequently, a few years later, moved back to London and I headed up the Equities Projects Office and the Credit Suisse private clients technology business. I was bored of the banking. I spent 20 years in it and I decided to move into fintech. Um, it was very, sort of, very much a buzzword at the time. And I joined a, a Swedish firm that was the uh, largest, well, actually the, independent, the only independent global exchange technology provider delivering sort of marketplace technology to uh, the likes of the London Metal Exchange and uh, Japan Stock Exchange and Australia Stock Exchange and, and some others. Before we talk about that, Mike, tell us about yourself, sir. Hi, good day. Thanks for having me on here, Matthew. Uh, my name is Mike Greenacre. I'm a British guy, born in, uh, born in England. Uh, I spent quite a bit of time abroad in my pr professional life. Uh, my early incarnation was at the sharp end of the oil business, looking for where to drill for uh, oil and gas. I worked with some small U.S. Uh, contractors and then some large U.S. contractors, and we were doing work for uh, large oil companies. Uh, I ended up in Switzerland working for a company there, which 
kept me in Switzerland for quite a while. But then the last two years, I saw some other things that spiked my interest, and that was mainly the uh, the trading environment in in Zurich, and the uh, the banks and the broking companies there. And ended up in uh, working for a company that traded gold, silver, platinum, and palladium, and it was owned by the three Swiss three big Swiss banks at that time. Gold is, uh, as I always say, most people on the planet haven't touched it, but everybody knows what it is. You know, three things in life, who your mother is, who your God is, if you have one, and what gold is. It's, uh, it's a unique thing within our psyche. It's uh, classed as a commodity because of Basel III and some, uh, some uh, regulatory issues, but uh, it's the only commodity we don't eat or burn. You know, it was very interesting that you said earlier to me is about the purity of gold. There's two types of purities, correct? So when you're talking about investment grade gold, um, there's two there's two types. There's what's called a London Good Delivery Large Bar. And those that's a, a marketplace which is overseen by the LBMA and they look at compliance and regulation and standards and quality of those bars. So that's a 400 ounce bar, 12 and a half kilos, and it's a rough uh, dimension there. There's quite a quite a tolerance within the weight there. And that's what the banks have. And we'll be talking later about ETFs. It's what they, it's the bars that they use to underwrite the ETFs, mm. uh, which are exchange traded funds. There's also the higher grade, which is uh, the bars I was just talking about is 995 purity. So if you think of that in a percentage term, it's 99.5% pure. Uh, there's another one which is more pure. It costs, uh, it, it has a premium to it for producing it because you have to take more impurities out of the ounce. And that's called four nines gold. It's 99.99 purity. So it has an extra minimum 4.49% uh, of purity in there. That costs quite a bit to get that out. Um, that's reflected in the price. Uh, and those are the bars which most people see. If you look at Goldfinger, everybody's seen the movie James Bond Goldfinger. Those are large bars. They're kind of 400 ounce bars, that, that, that traditional thing. A kilo bar is about the size of an iPhone. Mm. Uh, the, the old smaller iPhones. So, so if you think, what's the difference between yeah. price between the nine nine five and the nine 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 nine? Yeah, it's the gold underneath it. They're, they're always priced in ounce. Some banks will price for certain clients in in kilos and grams, but in the international market, so it's always uh, it's gold per ounce. So if you think that you have a certain amount of gold in there, you if you buy an ounce of gold on the nine nine five, it's ninety nine. 0.5% minimum gold, okay? So that has that has a value of gold per ounce. If you if you think of uh, the other one, then that's 99.99% per ounce. So there's more gold in the ounce of gold. It's kind of, it's a funny thing to, to try and explain. The ounce is an absolute weight. There's how much gold is in that ounce. Got it, I got it. Gold is gold, you can't tell where it came from. That's why the, the things like the provenance issues are so relevant at the moment. Jamie, we're here to talk about the history of regulation. Some say history doesn't repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. We have seen people in the Great Depression have lose all of their stuff because you know the industrial Re revolution new companies came out they mortgaged their house they lost it all when the stock market fell we saw a lot of people do the same thing in the crypto market of 2017 they sold their cars their boats their houses or whatever put it all into bitcoin because they thought they were going to go moon can we go through the history of where these regulations came from how did the traditional market get to where it is today 
that's a very good point, Matthew. We, you know, we, we don't seem to learn from our mistakes. And uh, I think just to be clear, right from the start, a lot of people, you know, when we talk about regulation, they probably switched off by now because they think it's a very boring topic. And, and trying to make it sound a bit more interesting, I think what's important to remember is that the regulators are very important to us. I mean, they're, they're there to, for consumer protection. They're not in the business of helping banks make money. Um, and they're there to protect the consumers from illegal practices and create a fair and open market and then reduce the systemic risk. Um, so they're very much needed. And I think a lot of the times uh, we blame regulators for killing a market off. And I think sometimes that's just because it hasn't been implemented correctly. Um, but I think going back to your point, so where do we see it? So at the end of the 1920s, of course, there was the uh, the, st- the huge stock market crash. And uh, people, a lot, a lot of people will say that that's due to false or misleading information. Um, I believe in that as well. So the, uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission was set up in 1933 um, as a result of that to try and establish some framework and some rules around providing um, open information and actually to not mislead investors into what they're investing in. In Europe, we had the uh, Financial Services Authority, the FSA, which is now called the Financial Conduct Authority. Um, in Europe, it's slightly different. Of course, you know we have, uh, we have the EU. And in the EU, the regulator, the over, sort of overarching regulator is called ESMA. That's the European Securities and Markets Authority. I'm just thinking that, you know, when we talk about lessons learned, 2008, when uh, we had the subprime crisis and uh, the credit default swap crisis, that kind of sort of showed that we never learned our lesson back from the 1920s, 30s. As, as you said, people are not being sort of warned about taking a second mortgage. You know, in 2008, the crash, sort of the real two factors were subprime mortgages and credit default swaps. And really, I think trying to break it down to a 101 level, what that means is people did not understand what they were getting into when they took out a mortgage. And there were no controls around mortgage providers actually demonstrating what the rate, what the rates were. And there was actually incentives for uh, brokers to persuade mortgage applications, mortgage applicants to go for a higher rate of interest on a mortgage because there was a bigger commission, a fee to the broker. So there was a very, as you can see, that's not protecting the consumer. That's actually looking out for the interest of the broker or, and for the, for the market itself. So in the US, and I'm not the expert in, in, in US regulation. I'm, again, my, my whole background has been in, in the EU. Um, but of course, we had everyone would probably have heard of Dodd-Frank. Um, and that was the Wall Street Reform Act, a consumer, a Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act of 2010. Um, and that was a direct result of the, the crisis in 2008. Uh, it was about 2,300 pages, and uh, it was introduced to, to decrease systemic risk in the U.S. in the U.S. financial markets. Um, and it resulted in 225 new rules across 11 federal agencies. So, as you can imagine, that's a very significant piece of work, and it's taken a number of years to implement it. And I can give you a, a little sort of brief, uh, I guess, the highest level possible on what that what that really broke down into, if you want. Please, please do. Yep. Okay, great. I mean, I'm sure everyone's loving this. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, talking about regulation is very difficult to make it sound sexy, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to do my best. The, Mate, you got that British accent that you luck, are lucky to have, so you're going to make anything sound sexy and smart. So, <laughs> Well, thank you. <laughs> Let's hope so. So the four things I think we should talk about while very quickly. One is the that the Dodd-Frank wanted to introduce financial stability, really for firms that were identified as too big to fail. Now, that, uh, that too big to fail term has been thrown around. And what it means is that 
we cannot afford a firm like Lehman Brothers to just go bankrupt um, overnight or in a, in a matter of days. That introduces too much instability into, into the economy. So what this too big to fail program was about was increasing the capital adequacy, the sort of the reserves, the financial reserves that a bank has to underwrite its exposure. Um, not only underwrite its exposure, but also make these firms understand what their exposure actually is. A lot of them didn't know that. The other part of that is it's about breaking up very large or singularly large institutions to sort of move the commercial banking aspect of their their business away from the investment banking aspect. Of course, investment banking is is a much more riskier business. Um, and what we what the uh, regulators did not want was that the investment bank would then take out the commercial bank. So there was a lot of this breaking up of these too big to fail firms. The second point was about consumer protection in in, in the mortgages. I told you just a, bit, a minute ago that we you know we're, it's about preventing brokers from getting higher fees for higher rates. It was uh, providing uh, sort of preventing the predatory mortgage lending um, sort of as, uh, angle that uh, that we saw, which was a, a direct result of that subprime mortgage catastrophe. The third point was something that you may have heard. It's called the Volcker Rule. The Volcker Rule is very sort of specific, and it prevents banks from proprietary trading. It separates the investment and the commercial function. So that's, again, very similar to this, uh, this whole sort of aspect of trying to take the risk away from one, for one part of the firm that would actually implement, uh, impact the other side of the firm. The last point I think that we uh, would like to touch on is the, is the regulation of these things I mentioned earlier, credit default swaps. Um, I guess it depends on who you ask. Some will say it's subprime, some will say it's credit default swaps. But you know, together, they, they, they've contributed massively to this crisis. Um, these CDSs were traded OTC, and they were there was very little disclosure about them, and there was no transparency and visibility. So what Dodd-Frank did was it, it's kind of pushing them towards um, trading on exchange abilities. Um, and it kind of it takes out, by putting it onto an exchange and taking it away from OTC, it takes away this counterparty risk, which is basically the risk of some other firm that you're trading with defaulting and disappearing um, during the middle of a trade and leaving you with, um, with, with all the risk. It takes a lot of time to implement these regulations, and the cost of implementing it and operating it is so significant that what it may be doing inadvertently is it's preventing firms and large banks from investing in new technology and new products. I want to give a shout out to the UK because I know I know I have an American accent, but the UK is my second biggest listeners with over with over a half a million listens from the UK tied for second with the Australia. So Europe is a great big market for Crypto 101. And I want to say thank you to everybody in the EU for listening to Crypto 101. But what you just said about regulations is we talked about banks, we talked about too big to fail companies, we talked about a lot of different aspects of what happened to cause rethinking what is happening in the market in traditional in the traditional sense. What about the individual? A lot of thing about the individuals is that they are drawn to crypto because they can finally get involved. You don't have to be an accredited investor or the non-accredited investors can go in and buy a little Bitcoin, buy a little Ethereum or Litecoin or what have you, invest and maybe get that opportunity that might not come to them in the traditional sense. Can you go into a little bit or can one of you go into a little bit about the individual regulations on the individual and what opportunities are for the individual to invest in the crypto market, or maybe that should not be there in general? You're, you're absolutely right. The crypto markets have um, allowed or enabled uh, individual retail investors 
to go out and invest in size, in uh, instruments that have potential, huge potential upside. The counter argument is that these individuals have no sort of consumer protection preventing them from investing in size in such instruments with huge potential upside. And as you know, anything with a huge upside has a huge downside. So it's a very difficult one to have a, a personal opinion on. But I think it is great that people have the right to do what they want and invest in what they want. And they don't have the, the restrictions imposed on them unless they have been through a number of uh, know, regulatory training courses or whatever it is, or have the FCA backing them or the SEC. If you don't understand what you're getting into it for, and if you're only getting into it for a massive return, you know, you need to understand that you potentially could lose everything. It's a bit like the, the dot-com bubble in uh, 2000s in, uh, in the US. Does the EU have accredited and non-accredited investors like the US? Is it called that? Does it work the same way? And if you could just unpack those two terms a little bit. Mike, do you want to go with the uh, go with that since it's your, your communities? Sure. So, you know, from my point of view, gold is, a, as I've mentioned before, is an internationally traded product um, between, you know, the world's biggest banks, Bank of International Settlements, all central banks have obviously gold positions, the Fed, Bank of France, uh, even the UK still has a little bit that wasn't sold. I think... The gold business is unregulated, and this is why Jamie and I got involved to provide this oversight, this transparency model that we delivered uh, earlier this year for the bullion market, global bullion market. When you talk about banks and you talk about individuals, a market might not be regulated, but depending on who you are and your individual or corporate status, how you act within a marketplace is regulated. So we've heard things about um, spoofing and these kind of things where people can spoof and go, you know, I think when you look at the crypto exchanges and you look, start, you know, I think the first, the first one that caught I'm my sorry, attention what, was what Silk Road. what is spoofing? Uh, you put a bid into a market or an offer into a market. So if the market is 9.10, you might put a nine and a half offer in, take it out, might put a nine and a half offer back in again, take it out and just put it in and out a few times, 9.6, 9.7 hoping that somebody joins it because that's where they think the market is. And if they want to buy some, they've got to pay 9.7. So then when you see that 9.7 bid come in just ahead of you, you can go and sell. Smart. Right? Well, it's smart, but um, some guys <laughs> I know <laughs> are wearing orange at the moment. And it's not... Uh, Wait, I it's not did I take that back? I think I got cut out. It's, I meant not smart. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it, it's... Um, so when you work at a bank or you... you on a, on a trading floor, all these king, things are done. Crypto is the Wild West. Jamie and I often describe it as the Wild West. And for me, it's kind of, it's even worse than, I don't want to say worse, that's not the right crypto. When I got asked 2015 what I thought of crypto, and I, you know, I'm not a technologist. I always spoke about um, application, things from the application point of view, how, how it could be used. I think there's some massive technology strides ahead for the markets and payment rails and many things where we've got incumbent systems which are um, not fit for purpose and just because you know anyway so when you're in the wild west you should be playing with the holiday money not the rent money no, i'm just going to say matthew i, I, I mean we didn't uh, answer your your question which was really you know are the uh, is there an equivalence the in the uk and europe for accredited investors in the us and and there is there are different rules around it we call it experienced investors um, there are slightly different rules around what that definition means, but I mean, if you want to break it down to a one-on-one level, if either you are um, you are registered with uh, the SEC or the F uh, FCA, or you have a uh, a ton of cash, so 
I guess, experienced or accredited investors could be anyone who has a high net worth. I, I don't necessarily agree that that means you are experienced in investing um, or accredited, but under the terms of that, 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 that have been defined, that, that does uh, permit you to then engage in these, these instruments and, and these transactions. So. Thank you. Thank you for going through with that. Um, what I really want to do is understand, because we already talked about a little bit about the laws in both the U.S. and the EU. And then we also want to touch on the individuals because it is the individual that is going into the crypto market and putting their hard-earned money, their $500, $1,000, whatever it is, or maybe even mortgaging their houses to go into the Bitcoin market. And this is where I think we need to go with this conversation because this is where regulation is going to start stepping in. It's not just with, you know, the coin bases or the big banks or, or, or what have you. It's to protect the individual from making stupid choices. So yeah, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I mean, I, I'd, I'd just like to jump in because I have a very, very funny personal story about this. But my um, my father actually is a, a world oil expert. He's been uh, in uh, reservoir uh, oil and gas for 50 years. Um, he's retired now. And he called me about a year ago. Um, and, and it was a funny conversation. He goes, uh, Jamie, should I buy Bitcoin? And I said, Dad, do you know what Bitcoin even is? And he said, no. I said, okay, so why do you want to buy it? He goes, well, because it, it's going up. And I think that is exactly why my focus left from fintech into the crypto space, because I felt like if my own father, who's a very respectable man and has done a lot of hard work in his career, wants to invest his, his pension into something that he doesn't know anything about just because it's going up, um, and he would be allowed to, as you said, he you know, he's a... He's, he may have enough. He doesn't have to follow the accredited or experienced investor rule to get into crypto. Just that scenario, if that's just my dad who's doing that, that really worries me. That, as you said, there's a bunch of people in this world who are just, you know, have the fear of missing out. I know they're just putting all their money into something that could be a bubble um, and it could burst. And we've seen it before. Uh, I'm not saying it's going to happen again. I just think that anyone who doesn't understand it and doesn't know the risks. Um, they need to be protected to a, to a certain degree. This might go a little bit meta, and I don't mean to, but when you said dad doesn't know about Bitcoin, and I'm going to just put it, in my, put, put it directly on me, do I, does dad, does mom, does grandma, does anybody even know where their 401k is or what it does? Do they know about, about mutual funds? Do they know anything about how anything works? And remember, they're putting their life, their savings into these systems. My, my stepfather had a half a million dollars in his 401k until 2008. And then, you know, he turned out it had 160,000. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Is that a very good right. rationality to say that if he doesn't know, should he be investing? 
We do it all the time. Sure, but that's that's the reason why we have approved um, advisors in the traditional markets. I mean, I'm not saying that all advisors give good advice, but those advisors are aware of, and they should be, um, if they're doing their job right, they should be communicating and educating their customers on what the risks are. So whilst we can lose money in traditional financial markets, even with good advice from an approved advisor, in the crypto space, there isn't anyone who's an approved advisor. And yet you looked on LinkedIn today, guarantee you, type in crypto, look on LinkedIn or look on Twitter, you're going to get these individuals who are not approved advisors, who are sitting there and giving their opinion, which they have every right to do, but they're putting it in the form of an advisory message saying that crypto is definitely going to go to 20,000 again or uh, Bitcoin is going to go to 20,000. In fact, even when Bitcoin was trading at $18,000, I saw somebody post on LinkedIn going, it's going to $200,000. Now, why do you think they're saying that? Because they're sitting there holding Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. So it, the advice that I'm seeing on the, on the, from these unapproved, unregulated, unauthorized um, sort of channels of, of information are just from people who want the price to go up because they're holding it. And the people who say it's, going to, it's a bubble and it's going to burst, it's going to disappear to zero, and they want it to go to zero, I guarantee they're not holding it. So you basically, all you're doing is listening to two sort of different factors of, of individuals, some who hold Bitcoin and some who don't hold Bitcoin. The ones who hold it want it to go up, the ones who don't hold it want it to go down. Can I just add something to that? Oh, yes, um, sir. I have a different opinion. Oh, um, there's enough regulation of our, of our lives. Uh, and I think people's pension funds should be protected. And I think that if you're from the point of emptying out your pension fund, even though it is your money, you could they could say, OK, you can take a bit of it out and do whatever. But otherwise, you know, we go and people go and buy property in the wrong place. They go and buy, you know, I've got friends who lost a load of money on Florida property and all these kind of things. And, you know, life is fraught with issues and troubles. And I don't think regulated crypto markets is going to make anybody's life particularly better. I think uh, you'll just drive it a little bit more underground and uh, people will just trade via Estonia or Turkey or somewhere else rather than, um, rather than uh, you know, we're living through, through Brexit over here. It's an absolute mess, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, to ask people who don't understand trading, they don't know what bid offer is, to try and regulate to market and to try and put some kind of sense around something like crypto, uh, I think is 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 just just a waste of time. And I think it's too intrusive. It's you know it's like sports betting. You're having a qualified bet. If you put a bet on the Raiders scoring in the scoring in the fourth and they don't, that's your right. And mm-hmm. it's your you know we shouldn't uh, you know we'll be we'll be putting fences around trees to stop kids climbing them and those kind of things. And I think our our regulators have enough of a job with things where if my parents go and buy a regulated mortgage or pension product, I want that protected and buttoned up. They're not stepping into the OK Corral. If you want to go and step into the OK Corral, that's your freedom. That's your that's your freedom of choice. And and, uh, and I believe that uh, we shouldn't try and regulate that and take that take that away because it's it's a microcosm of global markets, and I think regulators have a big enough job on uh, on those things. We we may sound like we're coming from different factions there. I think we kind of agree. I'm not suggesting that the regulators are the ones who come in and mandate to products are are regulated or how they're treated. What I am saying is that we need to have more information, 
from approved sources um, and more education and, and understanding of what, we, what, what the products are and why we're getting into them and what the risks are. I'm not saying that we should stick a, a, another European a Dodd Frank onto crypto. Um, and in fact, Mike, you and I know better than most that this is uh, this is exactly what happened with the gold market, the global precious metals market. Um, you know, for the first time ever, the regulators didn't necessarily. Um, understand the market to the point where they were comfortable with putting a generic blanket regulation onto this product. What they did instead is they went to the London Bullion Market Association and they asked for their advice when they gave to regulate their own market. And I think that that shows a lot of maturity. I think that, and that for the first time ever, we saw a regulator approve a non-regulator, um, non-regulated entity to go ahead and implement and define, design, even create the, the rules around what transparency in global precious metals looks like whilst not killing off um, or putting any of the businesses in that market at risk of exposure of what they're doing. It's a fine balance of having fully regulated market where everything is exposed and everyone's businesses are then exposed or having not enough regulation where it's not really effective. So what Mike and I did is we found a balance that all the participants in the market were comfortable with, which the regulator and the Bank of England were, and the LBMA were comfortable with because it demonstrated enough transparency um, whilst not you know, exposing the businesses that were participating in that business. Actually, what you guys are saying is going in directly into my next question. Where do you see the regulation for the crypto market going in terms of institutions, Coinbase, exchanges, Binance, and the individuals, the influencers, and the investors. Jamie. So I, I personally feel that it is going the wrong direction. I feel like the regulators, as Mike said, um, and that, that they shouldn't, I feel like the regulators are going to step in. And I feel that, you know, when we start seeing derivative forms of, uh, of cryptocurrencies being listed on, on uh, multinational exchanges, you know, we're starting to traverse that gap between traditional finance and crypto finance. So they, they are becoming more familiar. And, and as soon as something looks like and smells like um, a, a traditional security, then it's going to be treated like a traditional security. So there's this whole sort of uh, uh, this Howey test, and, and we won't go into that now. But it, the idea is that when these products start behaving like traditional financial securities or, or instruments or commodities, that's when they will be regulated as such. So personally, I feel like they are just going to suddenly be captured under the all-encompassing um, existing regulatory frameworks. I think that they will go that way. I'm not sure that's necessarily the right thing. As I just said, I think that they need to be treated differently. One of the things we want to make sure that doesn't uh, make sure doesn't happen is we don't want to see the regulation on the technology itself. We don't want blockchain to become regulated. You know, we want regulation to be a technology agnostic. The objective is to achieve risk mitigation, but not necessarily by prescribing the method to achieve it. I see it going down the route where crypto products will be regulated just exactly the same as traditional financial products. Now, where do you want it to go? coming up with a, a regulatory sort of framework, a, a voluntary regulatory framework, as it were, that would introduce that certain proportionate transparency, um, advisory information, some, a process that actually helps get us to a point where the consumer's protection, the consumer protection is there, but without having to then just use a sledgehammer to crack a walnut. Uh, and the reason I use that analogy is because it's been coined before, I mentioned these European regulations, Method 2, MIFID 1 was about equity transactions, and the rules that were set about were very, uh, became, were very relevant to the, to the behavior of an equity or a security. Um, when you try and take a, um, an illiquid 
bond or fixed income product, and you try and apply the same rule that is therefore a very liquid instrument, something that trades very regularly and very frequently, as soon as you try and apply the same regulation, um, the same construct onto something that's illiquid, it doesn't really work. Um, and what we saw in MIFID II when we were implementing this regime was it, it, you were, it wasn't really appropriate. It didn't actually make a lot of sense. And, and there was a risk that the the markets, the actual products and instruments that were involved in this market were going to be impacted in terms of their in terms of their, their trading activity. So we did see firms stop trading in certain instruments because of the rules that were in place. Now, I said earlier, regulation is there to protect the consumers, mitigate risk, take out systemic risk, but it's not there to shut a market down entirely. And I think that was because we saw that the regulation wasn't really appropriate or proportionate. So what I want to see in crypto is that we have experts who understand what the instruments are and they allowing us to put an appropriate level of regulation or standards or transparency around the instruments themselves to help people understand what they're investing in and what the risks are. It sounds like the F FCA and the SEC, once they have their hammer, every legislation looks like a nail. Mike, what is your opinion on those two questions that we posed earlier? You want protection on how you transact a cryptocurrency. You can go and go to Chicago Mercantile Exchange. There's talks about ETFs. If people do bring into an ETF, an exchange-traded fund, the exchange where it's listed will have have its bits around it. And I would, if my parents said they wanted to go and buy Bitcoin, then I'd say, I'll do it for you if you really want, um, or you can, I'll help you do it. If you're a regulated entity, then you're kind of going to have to go to, as Jamie was saying, you know, to somewhere where you know where your source of funds is coming from. There's all these things like chain analysis and clean, um, clean coins and these kind of things. And I think that's kind of comes back down to provenance that we've mentioned a few times here, and it's provenance. Of, you know, if you're if you're a financial institution, you need to know who you're trading with. And the guy who just bought three of the uh, 100 tokens you just sold wasn't Pablo Escobar, because for me, you know, the, the crypto came around kind of as a as an anarchist charter. It's to strike out against the system. Now suddenly we're talking about bringing it into the system. But the other thing that's that's completely clear is that, you know, why did crypto, it was sitting, why did Bitcoin that was sitting quite happily for a few weeks at, uh, at around six and a half thousand, why did it suddenly go? And what happened and what pushed that? So is that some kind of machine trading that's going on, some kind of computer programs that are that are coming into it? Because there was no up, upwards move, did people get out? An exchange or a clearinghouse isn't gonna protect you from those, those, those violent levels of utility. Then it's a big boys game. I think there's too many exchanges. I think there's too much clutter in there. You know, the Huobis, all the other guys, and and I think there's there's an awful lot of noise out there around exchanges that are, you know, how secure are they? How happy are they that the that you know there's a very very uh, far eastern tinge to the market, and there's a very very eastern block sort of tinge to these markets. So I think uh, how how that develops will be interesting. But I think more and more mainstream people will be coming into it. I have no doubt that there will be zero protection from the volatility swings. Mm -hmm. You said the magic word just a little bit ago, and we have to get into this. Even though we're 50 minutes already into this podcast, we have to get into what is an ETF. You said an ETF will be a form of protection. First, let's go into what is an ETF, why is it a form of protection, and what are different types of ETFs? 
So an ETF is uh, exchange traded fund. So it's a fund set up so that there's one in gold. And what that means is, is that there's gold held in vaults in London and there's about $30 billion of it. I had uh, I knew you were going to ask me this. So I went and checked for the second time this year how much gold was in the ETF. Um, but there's about $30 billion in the biggest biggest one out there. So that's an, an awful lot of gold. There has been considerably more held in there. Um, but an ETF is means that uh, you can go to a stock exchange or, you know, and this one is, uh, even though the people behind it are based in Europe, it's quoted on on uh, NYSE, I believe. Basically, they have a note which is underwritten by uh, a product held in a vault so that if you go and buy these notes, then you know that they're supported by, by gold somewhere in a bank vault. They're not exchangeable for gold, so it means that it means that you can buy and sell gold and be rest assured that the gold you have is good provenance, uh, a good uh, good source, uh, and it actually exists and sits in a vault because of the oversight that those people have. Now, you can have an ETF for, for basically anything you want, uh, or an ETN, exchange-traded note, depending on, on what the asset is that you're underwriting. So if you think of it like a, uh, a stock in Apple, what it does is it can take a physical piece of something uh, and turn it into something like a like a share in Apple, so that you can trade it on the same exchange. So that has benefits for you from how you use your your available funds. So you don't have to move if you want to uh, sell Apple and buy gold, then you don't have to move move uh, funds from one exchange to another. You can sell your Apple stock and go and buy gold via the ETF. ETFs can be anything. So basically, I could have now. Let's just talk about fruit <laughs> instead of talking about Apple. The the uh, own computer company, I can have a fruit yep. ETF, and I can have in that basket of ETFs this this fund. I could have bananas and apples and strawberries and oranges and all these other things, and basically it puts it everything into that one basket. And I'm basically investing into that basket. Do you think crypto would well, have the same it thing? Be, it, sorry, it could be for an individual thing, okay. or it could be for a it could be for like a, an individual, like a, a gold, just gold, mm-hmm. or you could have an ETF for a basket, as you say. So it could be like for the uh, for the Florida farmers, and they're exposed to what grapefruit, orange, and all kinds of things. So that you could have an ETF based on their output and their products. So you can kind of commoditize it. So when you go and look at things like the film, I always tell people to go and look at trading places. There's a lot of information in that movie and it's a bit of fun <laughs> and they have uh, they explain commodities quite well in there i think to answer your question wait, wait was is, that is with steve martin and crypto? eddie murphy yeah oh great movie yeah. <laughs> go watch it it's amazing eddie murphy grows legs right at the start yeah, great movie anyway go ahead i'm sorry i i, I was yeah. like wait which movie are you so, talking so, about you're talking about you went back to yeah. 1983 <laughs> exactly showing it so, showing so if you want to Exactly. So if you want to, so a guy who works with me used to stand on the, on the silver pit down where that is, where that is filled in the, under the old, uh, under the trade center. Um, and then after bombing in, uh, 2098, I think they moved it down to world financial center. Mm-hmm. So I think the issue is, is when you look at, if you go on these tracker things that I do and I look at what, what's performing and what's not, most of the, the cryptos all do exactly the same thing, other than the ones that are linked to something exterior, ex- externally, like um, like the, there's the one that's linked to dollars or linked to something else. They all move very similarly. But if you, you wanted exposure to all of them, sure, you can have that. And I think the interesting thing is you should be able to, 
is um, be able to put in stop losses. So if you buy 4,400 and uh, you say, okay, I'll take the pain down to 400 for 4,000. If it goes through that, you sell all my you sell all my stuff. And that's where a professional market maker will work your order and you have uh, security of their best ability to execute you, execute your wishes. Um, and I think that's kind of a, an interesting thing because a lot of people don't sit there and watch these things live all day long. What are the different ATF I think, markets? I, think, I, I hear all the time that you said, like you said, Chicago. I heard the Wrinklevosses are doing something in New York. Then there's a Canadian one. Yep. Then there's an Australian one. What does that even mean? Exactly. Uh, those are on the exchanges. So as Jamie said, he worked with the LSE, which is London Stock Exchange. So that's the UK equivalent of, of the New York Stock Exchange. Right. So what it is, it's like if you if you list the company, you've got your new pizza restaurant and you've got uh, you've got 15 outlets and you want to build 100. So you float on the stock exchange and you paper out and people go and buy the shows like an IPO, initial public offering, your paper, your shares on the on the exchange, the new shares that you issue in your organization. You've given them a document to say, yeah, we're going to go and uh, we're, we're raising uh, 20 million to go and build 100 new restaurants, whatever. So. Now, where you issue, where you put that out, so there's uh, Australia, there's a there's a stock exchange in Australia. Every major country or virtually every country has some kind of exchange somewhere. So uh, that's either a, a stock exchange. So when you're looking at things like ETF, uh, that's exchange traded funds, and they will generally be a note on a piece of paper, a, a, a note you call it, which is backed up by something physical somewhere that underwrites it. It could also be, um, you could have an ETF on a selection of tech products. So you could say you could have an ETF on Apple, HP, Intel, and uh, IBM stock. And that would be a basket of products. And you could create it's an ETF. The problem is, is then you have to, it's like an ICO. You have to get people to come in and buy it. So uh, you normally need a bank or someone to underwrite it. I don't think banks will be underwriting uh, gold, uh, underwriting uh crypto ETFs. What would an ETF do for Bitcoin? What does it even matter? Why is it important and why does people keep talking about this? Because it will put the transaction into a regulated environment. You know, we've, everybody who looks at, at Bitcoin, let's just take Bitcoin, you know, all the things with Silk Road, all these various issues where there's been fraud going on, there's been, um, you know, one of the, 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 the problems with Bitcoin and one of the problems with getting People to adopt the technology behind Bitcoin blockchain is everybody thinks it's defraudable. It's not. It's the on and off ramps which are defraudable. So I think putting it into a, a an environment where people have the security that your transaction is going to happen in a professional, as professional a manner as possible is something interesting. Uh, but that doesn't stop you going on to uh, Binance or or somewhere in, uh, in Estonia and trying to... Uh, trying to buy buy tokens there. I think just to touch on something briefly is there's a thing called benchmarking, which is when you say this this product has this value. And um, how do we how do we establish that value that we transact at? Uh, and we're actually uh, working on a project with some guys here in Europe uh, and and Asia um, to look at it's one of the specialities that Jamie and I uh, fling around. Um, but looking at creating what's called a, a benchmark pricing, so that if you say Bitcoin was 4,400 today, 4,401, there's a way that you establish that, which comes under a jurisdiction and a legal process to establish that price. And that, I think, 
think will be a big help for the market. Right on, right on. Thank you for explaining ETFs and the different and the ins and outs of ETFs, the ETFs markets and what it would do to Bitcoin. Jamie, Mike, thank you for the one hour of conversation today. Before we get off, could you please let us know how to find you? If anybody has said, hey, you know what, these are two smart dudes. I might want them. I want, I want to hit them up and, and pick their brain about some gold. So uh, Mike and I, uh, I mentioned earlier, we're, we're, we're running a new venture now with, uh, with our co-founders. It's called UTU. If you, uh, if you Google that or if you want to look at the UTU token, you'll find us there. Obviously, we're on LinkedIn. I'm very happy for people to come to us and, and ask any questions. Obviously, uh, there's a lot more information behind what we just managed to speak about. So I'm sorry we took so long to get to the, <laughs> to get to the end result, but we'd be happy to field any questions that come our way. Right on, Jens. And I can be found at the Venture in Public House on Saturday lunchtimes in Rugate. Say that again? <laughs> The Venture in a public house. It's a bar. Uh, okay. <laughs> it, it, it took me a while. And, I was, and then now I'm thirsty, actually. <laughs> I'm going to go to the bar exactly. as well. Jens, thank you very much for the hour of conversation today. And it was very informative. And I hope that you guys come back on either together or individually to talk more about regulation. Gold. I would love to have an episode just on gold. Super Thank happy you very much. to talk Thank about you. gold. It's, uh, as I said before, a lot of uh, crypto CTOs have uh, seen some big similarities between gold and, uh, and, the, and the crypto markets. So it's a very relevant thing. All right, gents. We'll talk to you later. Perfect. Thanks, Matthew. Cheers. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Crypto 101. Mike, Jamie, thank you very much for coming on the show. And if you want to hear my opinion, rant, or commentary about crypto regulations, please hop over to our YouTube channel, Crypto 101 with Matthew Aaron. In future episodes, we have crypto taxes, not only a 101, but we also have a refreshment of law and what we've learned from 2017. We have Tales from the Crypto, which is an insight to behind the scenes of ICO fundraising in 2017 for all those companies that were just trying to get rich. And in between all of those episodes, we have many episodes from my talks with Zilliqa, Kyber, Everix, Elf, and Status from the F Hackathon in Singapore. So look forward to sharing all of that content with you. And like always, ApogeeCrypto.com, A-P-O-G-E-E Crypto.com, the best place for your real-time prices, CryptoNews.com for your news. And thank you very much to Simon for editing this episode of Crypto 101. We'll see you in future episodes. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.